Hello, my name is Lee Shellnut, and I'm the pastor of the Huntersville Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. That's a mouthful, so we affectionately know of ourselves as HARP. We at HARP welcome you to the podcast of our preaching and teaching ministry. We're grateful that you've joined us. If you're encouraged by what you hear, we'd love to have you subscribe. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we love sharing the glorious good news of the Lord Jesus Christ as we preach and teach through the pages of Holy Scripture. So join us now as we open up God's Word. This is the invitation. If you would, please take your bulletin. We've got our uh, main text this morning. Uh, They're printed out in full in your bulletin. That's 2 Samuel chapter 10. But if you'd also, uh, if you've got your Bible or you've got a pew Bible, I want you to turn to two other passages that we're going to look at together this morning in conjunction with uh, 2 Samuel chapter 10. The first is Psalm 2. Psalm 2. So if you've got a bookmark, put a bookmark there at Psalm 2. And then the second is Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. So with those three passages nearby, let's now go to the Lord's Word. We are blessed to have the privilege of hearing our great and glorious God speak to us to reveal Himself and His will. Give your attention to the reading of 2 Samuel chapter 10. After this, remember the this was the whole story about David showing Mephibosheth that covenant, fidelity, kindness, and love. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. Now, if you remember back in 1 Samuel, Saul battled Nahash and defeated him. But evidently after that, when Saul was chasing David, David found something of a refuge in Nahash and in the Ammonites. So David now says, And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes, or the advisors of the Ammonites, said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. Now when it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho. Now Jericho's right on the other side of the Jordan River from the Ammonites. Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth-Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, 
and the king of Machab with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate, and the Syrians of Zoab and of Rahab, and the men of Tob and Machah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. And the rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. And then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadazer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. And they came to Halam. Now Halam is just to the east of the Sea of Galilee. They came to Halam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadazer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Halam. And the Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobach, the commander of the army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadazer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. Amen. Imagine with me a great seamstress. Uh, if you knew her to be that, she was exactly that. Miss Louise Knox was an amazing seamstress. I mean, she can do everything from curtains to reupholstering sofas to making wedding dresses. Imagine a great seamstress like Miss Louise Knox, one who knew her trade, one who had a good eye, and one who had great skill. Now take that image and blow it up as big as you can. And imagine not a skilled seamstress, uh, but imagine a perfect tailor. Imagine not one who had a good eye, but imagine a tailor who has a, a perfect eye. Uh, don't imagine somebody with um, good skills, but imagine someone with perfect skills. Now this perfect, uh, powerful, wise, good tailor begins to make clothes. He begins to make an entire wardrobe for a particular person, a particular person in mind, a particular person that he's got got in his sights. And he makes these clothes, pants, shirts, waistcoat, coats, ties, top hats, shoes, everything. A wardrobe for every occasion, for every type of weather. And it's designed for a particular person. And let's just imagine that particular person is you. 
And the, and the master tailor has made this wardrobe for you. But the, and, and it's there for you. It's on display for you. It's before you. And you look at it and think, well, maybe, that doesn't, maybe that's not really for me. Maybe it's for somebody else. Let me go and try to put this, this uh, shirt and this waistcoat and this coat and this tie on somebody else. And maybe you are like me and you're short and you're trying to put it on somebody who's tall and it's just not working because it's not made for somebody else. Now I'll give you that sort of silly illustration to describe for us what I think oftentimes happens in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ when we come to a text like 2 Samuel chapter 10. Now sometimes you might find yourself in a group of Christians who say, well, you know, this is just an Old Testament story. I mean, we live, we live after the coming of Christ. We live after the resurrection. This story really doesn't apply to us. It might apply to the uh, secular nation Israel, uh, but, it, but it really doesn't apply to us. Now, I think that's one error. Another error is to uh, come to a text like 2 Samuel chapter 10 and say, well, you know, I think since it's dealing with a king and a nation, it must be for my country. So maybe this text is talking to the United States and it's telling us to be something. Or if you're in Russia and if you're a Putin, you would say, maybe this text is talking about Mother Russia and it's talking about us. And I think that's an error as well. I think we fall off and I think we miss the mark because we're not quite understanding how this text really should be applied in our day. This text is written about, yes, a king, God's king. It's written about a king who's reigning over God's people in God's land. It's talking to us about something that is both church and state combined. It's talking to us about a people that consisted of ethnic Jews, and we would see, if we continue looking at stories in the Old Testament, we'll see a trickle of Gentiles come in and join this people, this church state, this theocratic uh, nation. But, but it applies in our day not to America, not to a secular Israel, not to a secular Russia. It applies to the new Israel. It applies to the church of today. We, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, are the true recipients of a text like 2 Samuel chapter 10. We, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, are now a people not, consisting not merely of ethnic Jews, but Jews and Gentiles, believing Jews and Gentiles. And we as a church are now not connected just to one nation. We are sent out through what? Throughout all the nations of the world. So when we focus on an Old Testament text here, we need to be asking ourselves, how does it apply to the church? The church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the United States, and specifically the church of the Lord Jesus Christ here in Huntersville. So let's kind of think about how might this text speak to us. It doesn't speak to the United States so much. It doesn't speak to Russia so much. It doesn't speak to secular uh, Israel so much. It speaks to the church. How so? Well, the first thing I want you to see, and we want to kind of build our case here, the first thing I want you to see is that it shows us something we should already know. It shows us 
that there are foolish enemies of our king. There are foolish enemies of God's anointed. There are foolish, there were foolish enemies of David, and there are foolish enemies of the son of David. In this story, the foolish enemies of God's anointed and God's people, the foolish enemies were Hanu and the Ammonites, and then Hadadazer and the Syrians. And we aren't surprised that they would be the enemies of God and God's people. We aren't surprised they'd be the enemies of David and the Israelites. We aren't surprised that the Ammonites and Syrians would have loved to have control of that caravan route, that, that major trade route that went through what we know of as Israel. We, we, we're not surprised that they would be the enemies of God's people wanting God's people's land. We aren't surprised uh, that they are enemies of God because we're told in 1 Samuel that they were a very wicked people. We are told that they would gouge out the right eyes of their enemies. We're also told in the prophets that they would uh, slit open pregnant ladies to kill two generations at a time. We aren't surprised then that they would suspect David to be sending spies. We aren't surprised that they would try to humiliate those, those uh, supposed spies, those envoys. And they do, don't they? They shave off half their beards. Now, you remember Israelite men were not supposed to trim their beards. And so this was a very humiliating thing to trim off or to cut off an entire half of a beard. So it's an attack against them as Israelite men's. And then they, they not only did that, but they also cut off their clothes, cut off their robe. And the Israelite men would have worn a tassel at the bottom of their robe. And that tassel was to remind the Israelite man of the law of God. So cutting off a part of their robe was actually an attack against the law of God. And not only did they just cut off the hem of the robe, they cut off the robe all the way up to the what? hips, exposing everything. They were humiliating these men. Humiliating. Imagine being those men. Imagine being humiliated like that and then walking through that gauntlet of jeering Ammonites. Imagine the shame that they felt. Oh yeah, it would make David mad. Right? And we're told here, literally, that the Ammonites were a stench to him. Now, that, the language there is, is crude. They stunk to him. They smelled. He's mad. And then on top of that, we're told that uh, they, with their Syrian counterparts, are baiting David and the Israelites to war. And then we're told later that the Syrians are going to bait the Israelites again uh, to come to war. And what I want you to see in all this is yet another story example of the truth that we find in Psalm 2. So look at Psalm 2 with me. Psalm 2, beginning with verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The Ammonites, the Syrians, are these 
kings of the nations of the earth. They are setting themselves up against the Lord's anointed, David and God's people. They're raging against David. And if that's the case, if they raged against David, how much more so, brothers and sisters, will there be enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ who rage foolishly at Christ, who, who raise the clenched fist at Christ and His people? Now that rage can come in all manner of forms. It can be soft opposition to the, to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that we might face in the United States or more. Specifically, it might be the sort of soft opposition that our brothers and sisters uh, of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as it, as it finds itself in Nevada that they're facing. You may have been following that story. The governor of Nevada uh, barred church services of a particular size while allowing casinos to just to go at it and allowing movie theaters to open. And so a church appeals to the Supreme Court of the land. And what does our Supreme Court do? They come back and they deny relief to this particular church. In other words, they are allowing, as the ultimate gauges of the law of our land, allowing that sort of discrimination against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to argue uh, about the wisdom of meeting in church, uh, of churches or the sizes or all that, but I want you just to hear the words of um, Justice Gorsuch, who wrote in his dissent the following... This is a simple case, he says. Under the governor's edict, a 10-screen multiplex may host 500 moviegoers at any time. A casino, too, may cater to hundreds at once. Perhaps some people huddled at the craps table, perhaps other people huddled around the roulette wheel. Large numbers and close quarters are fine in such places. But churches, synagogues, and mosques are banned from admitting 50 worshipers. No matter how large the building, no matter how distant the individuals, how many people are wearing masks, no matter the precautions at all. And he ends with this. There is no world in which the Constitution permits Nevada to favor Caesar's palace over Calvary Chapel. And yet... That's what's happened. And, and brothers and sisters, let's, let's be quite clear. That's soft opposition. That's mild. Okay. Mild. But it is an infringement upon the liberty of the church. But we have that sort of soft opposition, but from that soft opposition, we can ratchet it up very, very quickly particularly when we, when we think of the outright violence that our Chinese Christian brothers face day in and day out from a communist regime. Or when we think about Christian African brothers and sisters who are enslaved in northern Africa. Today. Not a hundred years ago. Today. Or we think about Muslim Fulani Fulani slaughtering our Nigerian brothers and sisters in Christ, a growing genocide 
that the world seems to be totally fine in ignoring. And unfortunately, it seems like much of the church is totally fine in ignoring. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord against His anointed. 2 Samuel chapter 10 reminds us that the Lord's anointed will be opposed. It reminds us that the Lord's people will suffer persecution. So now how do we apply Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 10 in the church today? Hear the rest of Psalm 2. That gives us a, a part of the application. He who sits... In the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Brothers and sisters, we apply 2 Samuel chapter 10 and Psalm 2 this way. We say to the governor of Nevada and all those like him or her, we say, kiss the Son lest He be angry. Find your refuge in Him. We say to that Fulani Muslim, kiss the Son lest He be angry. Find your refuge in Him. That's how we apply this text. How do we apply this text? That God laughs at wicked men and shakes, uh, who shake their fists and align themselves against Him. How do we apply the text that says the Ammonites and the, Syri and the Syrians were routed? Will we apply it as the early church applied it? Take your Bibles, go to uh, Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. You'll remember the story of Acts chapter 4 and these early chapters of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, the Lord poured out His Holy Spirit upon His church. The church grew. It's expanding there in Jerusalem. And we see the apostles going out and preaching and proclaiming the Lord to all those gathered. And particularly we see Peter and John going out. And we see that they are preaching the risen Christ. And we see they meet opposition. You see that opposition in the first part of chapter 4. You see that they meet the opposition of the religious rulers of that day who haul them in, who arrest them, who bring them before them and challenge them and tell them that they got to stop preaching and teaching in Jesus' name. They've got to stop preaching and teaching the resurrection found in Jesus Christ. They've got to stop preaching and teaching the gospel. And what do the apostles uh, courageously say? We will obey God rather than men, right? And at this juncture, they're released. 
And where do they go when they're released? They go to the church. They go to the people of God. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they, the church, their brothers and sisters, when they heard it, what did they do? They lifted up their voices. They prayed. How do we apply 2 Samuel chapter 10? How do we apply Psalm 2? By praying and praying like the early church. How did they pray? They lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Now notice in their prayer who or where they quote. They quote David and they quote David's psalm, Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. How do we apply 2 Samuel 10? How do we apply Psalm 2? We pray unto our sovereign God for boldness. Boldness for all of our brothers and sisters in Christ, including ourselves, to go out and speak the gospel lovingly but boldly no matter the cost. We pray. We pray. We pray. We speak boldly. We speak boldly in the name of Jesus. We tell an unbelieving world, find your refuge in Jesus. Take your comfort in Him. There's more to... Uh, our text, 2 Samuel 10. Let's go back to 2 Samuel 10. The second thing I want you to see, and I'll move quickly through the second and the third. The second thing I want you to see is that we also see in this chapter a bloody theologian. A bloody theologian of our king. In the battle narratives that make up the majority of this chapter, Joab comes to the forefront. David kind of steps back. And we'll, we'll pick up that in the next chapter as well. Joab comes to the forefront. Notice in verse 9, When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. Okay, so we see here in verses 9 through 11, Joab is strategizing. Joab, this military mind, is figuring out on the fly what to do. We see this man, Joab, a, a man who at this point, by the time we get to this chapter in 2 Samuel, we're not that wild about. Because this man, Joab's rough. This man, Joab, is, is not such a noble warrior at times. This man, Joab, is oftentimes looking out for number one, and that is looking out for himself. 
And we see him, this sort of rough-and-tumble warrior, we see him making a, a, a military strategy, and that's not surprising to us. But then he goes and he really catches us off guard. Notice verse 12. He goes from being this weathered, tough fighter to being a brilliant theologian. Verse 12. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people, and for the cities of our God. If we, he's basically saying if we lose, the Ammonites are going to do what? They're going to run over our cities. And notice this is where he gets into some fantastic theology. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. May the Lord do what seems good to him. All kinds of lessons. I've I, I got to be brief. The first thing is we, we need to pick up the lesson of who teaches us. Who's teaching us here? It's a rough warrior. It's a guy who's oftentimes looking out for, for number one. And nevertheless, such a person could speak what? Truth. Such a person could speak great theology. Such a person can teach us. Dear ones, let us not easily, quickly dismiss those who may be our teachers. God can teach us using a dumb donkey. God can teach us using a rough warrior. God can teach us using a little child. God can teach us through an uneducated person. God can teach us through someone who, quite frankly, is still rough around the edges. They haven't progressed a whole lot in their holiness. They haven't progressed a lot in their theology. And yet, when they speak biblical truth, they can do what? They can teach us. Are we humble enough to listen? So there's, there is that sort of lesson, but then there are the lessons of what he actually said. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to Him. First of all, He acknowledges the Lord. He acknowledges that there is a sovereign in control of all things. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know if His troops are going to be victorious. But He does know that there is a sovereign God and He's not bashful about saying so. We shouldn't be as well. We should be quick to say, no matter how confusing this world and this life is, there is one who is sovereign, and he is my God. He acknowledges him. He also takes action. He doesn't wait around. He doesn't say, well, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. God hadn't told me what to do. No, he takes action. In the midst of dangers, he takes action. He's not paralyzed. And we, we need to take note of that. Sometimes we come to problems in this life and we're paralyzed. We're frozen. We don't know what to do. Well, we step out in faith, seeking to be biblically faithful, and we take the next step. That's what we do. We see that he trusts God. He's not, he's not saying, well, I'm just going to trust God and let him take care of it. He's taking action. <coughs> he's doing things. But he's not going to trust in his doing them. He says, may the Lord do what seems good to him. And then lastly, notice there was a proper uncertainty that he had. A proper uncertainty that he had. May the Lord do what seems good to him. He doesn't know what the outcome is going to be. He doesn't have a specific promise for this specific situation. 
but he knew the one in whom he should trust. He has, nevertheless, a sovereign, wise, and gracious God, and so do you, so, so do we. Calvin writes, God will never abandon us, and that in the end he will show that our hope in him was not in vain, so that our faith will not be frustrated when it rests upon his mercy and his truth. Nevertheless, we must remain in suspense about many things. For instance, when we ask for our daily bread, it's not that we are assured that He will give us a good harvest, and then I like what He adds here, or a great vintage. We're not assured that He's going to give us a great harvest or a great vintage. We should leave that in His hands and patiently await what pleases Him. Joab said, May the Lord do what seems good to him. Uh, Del Ralph Davis says that as we ponder this, there's a strange chemistry here. Taking Job's words into our dilemmas may make us more confident and less certain. More confident in our God less certain in what he's going to actually do in our particular situation. And brothers and sisters, that's a good thing. Let us be confident in our God. But let us not think that we're so certain about everything. Let's trust in God. Let's have our confidence in Him. May the Lord do what seems good to Him. Lastly, 2 Samuel chapter 10 pictures for the church a loyal witness of our king. Notice the first two verses quickly. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal... What's the word? Loyally. You got a footnote, it says what? Kindly. What's the word? Same word as was used in the last chapter. Has said. He will show covenant love, fidelity, and kindness, not merely to insiders in the church like Mephibosheth, a member of the covenant community. Now he's saying he wants to show it to whom? Those outside the church. He's got his national policy, and now he's got his what? Foreign policy. And if we apply it to the church... We've got inside the church the sort of covenant has said love that we are to show to one another, chapter 9. But we also have covenant love and fidelity that we want to extend, that we want to offer to those outside the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the while knowing what they might do to us. like Hanun. It is not our place to dictate what unbelievers should do to our expressions and offers of Hesed. It is ours to offer Hesed to them. It is ours to deal justly, but more than justice, to deal kindly and lovingly 
with unbelievers. What did we pray or what did we read earlier in the law? Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5? You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, see that no one repays anyone. No wiggle room there. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Everyone. Inside, outside the church. Davis again pithily says, in short, our said should include Ammonites and other pagans. And aren't we glad David's did? And aren't we even gladder that the son of David offered such said to the likes of us? To take those who are far off and bring them near to be sons and daughters of God. Now let's pull it all together. May the Lord do what seems to be good to Him, and may that be using the hesed that we extend to others outside the church to defeat all His and all our enemies, turning multitudes of enemies into brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's make it a little awkward here. Be it a greedy capitalist, a raging member of Antifa, a racist neo-Nazi, a QAnon conspiracy theorist, a Fulani Muslim, a dictatorial communist leader, a jaded neighbor, a lonely, elderly, battle-scarred veteran, a frightened child, a screaming mad anti-masker customer, the Nevada governor, or whoever the Lord should place before us. That's sad. As for me, Psalm 2, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Verse 19 of 2 Samuel chapter 10 and when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, 
they made peace with Israel. A tiny mustard seed will grow into an enormous, not just plant, into an enormous tree. Jesus is boggling the mind. Have your mind boggled. Pray this prayer. Offer said, and may the Lord use your said offered to others in the building of His kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we boldly pray this. We ask that you would work in our hearts such a love that even when we have those who will humiliate us and offer us harm, we will return unto them the love of Christ. We will speak the truths of the gospel and we will offer acts of love and kindness and loyalty to those not merely in the church, but outside the church as well. Use this as we are a part of your church, sent into your world, and with the promise that the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.